We're going to need to turn to page 802, page 802 as we continue this series in Malachi. Penultimate week this week, I think. I think that's right. I may have lost count. Um, Malachi chapter 3, we're going to be looking at as you turn that up. Let me welcome you very, very warmly indeed, especially if you're visiting us from out of town. We love having visitors with us and are great that you're able to be here today. I'm going to pray, then read God's Word before we try and understand it together. Almighty God, we want to thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, that you are the rock, the one upon whom your people can depend. And we want to thank you that it is your purpose to bless, that you're always slow to anger, but you abound in steadfast love. And so we pray that we might know more of you now, and that as we get to know you, as we learn about you, that you would draw our hearts to you, that we might give you the esteem, the honor, the worship, the love that you deserve. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Malachi 3 then, and I'm reading just verses 6 to 12 in the right-hand column there. God says through Malachi, For I, the Lord... Do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. hope you want to keep that open in front of you. There's also an outline of the points that we're going to make, a couple of cross-references for you later if you want to look them up as well. Um, it is often said that we live in a world of change. Yeah, you know that, the advent of the internet, now the rise of AI means that life and education and work today are unrecognizable from 50, 20, even 10 years ago. Uh, It's always been like this. It was as long ago as 535 BC that the Greek philosopher, uh, Heraclitus, is meant to have said, the only constant in life is change. Um, If you fact-check that quote, it turns out he may never have said it, but he should have done, because the, the fact of change is undeniable. Uh, We know the climate changes. 
Tides ebb and flow, fashions and hairstyles come and go. Towns change as well. Shops are here today, gone tomorrow. I was chatting this week to someone who was last in St. Andrews 47 years ago, and the place is unrecognizable. Buildings rise all around us, and then we discover they're made of the wrong concrete, so they fall. Change is everywhere. Benjamin Franklin said, nothing in the world is certain except death and taxes. And you know that change can be unsettling. Uh, watch an older person try to use a new mobile phone or just to even it up. Watch a younger person try and cope when all of their friends leave town. And before long, you will hear someone say, do you know, I, I don't do all that well with change. And so we like to have constants, don't we? People and things that we can depend upon. We like anchors of stability around us that won't let us down. And many of us think instinctively of parents or friends or a spouse, but not even the best of them can be our rock forever. And so we can be very thankful this morning to be reminded of one who is the same yesterday and today and forever. We meet him in our first main point. The Lord does not change, so return to him. And God says it himself in verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change. Uh, To help us reflect on what he means by that, why it's such good news, I want us to think briefly about his being, his character, his plans, and his promises, his being first. In his being, God is today what he always has been and what he always will be. Uh, God doesn't get old and develop wrinkles on his brow. His eyesight doesn't fade. He doesn't start to feel weak and struggle to keep up the times. He could never be any better than he is today because he's already perfect, and he will never become any worse. He is eternally consistent. And when we think about his character or his attributes, that is an enormous relief. Was God powerful? when he spoke the cosmos into being. Everything from the billions of galaxies with their trillions of stars right down to the design of a single atom. Was he wise when he set the sun and the size of it in the sky, when he positioned the earth exactly the right distance from it and set us on exactly the right orbit and put exactly the right mixture of gases in the air so that human life is possible? Was he loving and good when he chose to reveal himself to us so that we might know him? Or when he sent his one and only son into the world to die so that we might be forgiven and given eternal life and live and reign with him forevermore? Has God ever proven himself to be just and faithful and true in his actions and in his words, then you can be 100% certain that he is all of those things still today and will be forevermore because he can only ever be true to himself and he does not change. He cannot lie, he cannot fail, he cannot change. 
and his plans are flawless too. Psalm 33 says, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. It goes on, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, Think of it, the only reason that God would ever have to change his plans would be if he lacked foresight about something that might happen or if he lacked power to accomplish them. All the time in life, you and I, I take it, have plans. But then something happens that we didn't predict or that lies outside of our control. We plan a, a holiday and then the airline goes on strike or air traffic control breaks down and so we have to revise our plans. We try and make the best of a bad situation. Same thing happens to governments. It happens to businesses. But God knows everything that will ever be and he has the power to do whatever he wills. And so he only ever makes perfect plans and he always fulfills them. Now, one really big and practical implication of that is that we can be sure that whenever God makes a promise, he will keep it. That's suggested even here by the use of God's special covenant name, Lord. You'll see it in all capitals in verse 6, Yahweh. It speaks of God's promise to be present in power, to save and to bless his people. God says, I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he's given me, but raise them up on the last day, so that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. I will raise them up on the last day. And because God is completely unchanging, not just in his being, in his character, in his plans, but also in his promises, when he says, I will forgive and bless all who return to me in repentance and faith, we know that he means it. We can build our life upon it. You know, God never has a bad day. God never lets himself down and has to apologize to the people around him. He never says one thing and does another. He says what he means, he means what he says, and not one of his promises has ever fallen to the ground. And here in Malachi, it is this great truth about God's own unchanging grace and perfection that gives his people hope and that drives the response that he wants from them and from us. So I, the Lord, do not change, says verse 6. Therefore, O children of Israel, you are not consumed. O children of Jacob, rather. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them, but return to me, and I will return to you. Um, All through Malachi, God has been exposing the sins of his people. He's been warning them of judgment. But God's first moral will is never to condemn. He is slow to anger. And so now we reach what is the big appeal of the whole book of Malachi. And this uh, little sentence is a mixture of command and invitation and promise. Return to me, and I will return to you. You've been turning away from me for generations. You've been ignoring my word for years. It's only thanks to my love and grace that you're still here at all. But despite all of that, 
return to me and I will return to you. A window of opportunity remains. There's no small print. There's no hidden terms and conditions that mean the headline offer isn't quite as good when you delve down into the detail. He doesn't say, return to me, and if you then do a good enough job, then I will return to you. He says, I don't change. I'm still the covenant Lord who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm the God of grace, so return to me. You've been away, but return to me, and I will return to you. To return to the Lord is to repent. It's to to turn away from that mindset and that life in which I think that I have the right to define myself and to decide how I live. And instead to accept God as my God. It's to, to commit my life to living for him and obeying him. And God was saying to Israel, this command, this invitation, return to me. You need to do that. And insofar as there's anyone here who's been doing the same as Israel, who's been ignoring God and his word, who's been living with myself and and my will on the throne of my life, The command, the invitation, the promise comes to us in the same terms. Return to me, says God, and I will return to you. Within those words is the promise of a restored relationship with the unchanging creator of all. A relationship in which God won't bear any grudges for the sins of your past, and in which there's no requirement of penance in the present, And there's no period of probation in your future. Just a a perfect, personal, secure relationship with your maker from the moment that I return. So all we have to do is to return, to come home to God, to acknowledge him as our father, our creator, our Lord, to admit our sin, to renew our loyalty to him. What follows, though, in Malachi is something that we've seen lots of times before. You've noticed in the series, I guess, that whenever they're presented with a clear word from God, they remain completely oblivious to their problem and refuse to do what God has said. So he says, return to me, and they say, how shall we return? And it would be lovely if it was a question that was coming from a place of humility, asking God for a bit more detail. Lord, of course we want to return. Just tell us what that should look like in practice in our life. I hope that's our attitude this morning. But they are denying that the problem even exists. What do you mean that we need to return? We never went anywhere. If anyone's gone, hey, well, God, it's you, not us. And so once again in Malachi, God confronts his people with the evidence. In chapter 1, you'll remember him talking about their roadkill sacrifices. In chapter 2, it was their attitude to marriage and divorce. Now, he homes in on their attitude to money and to giving. Verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? Answering your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
Um, tithes were a, a practical way for the people of Israel to express their complete dependence upon God, to acknowledge with thanks that everything good in their life had come from Him. So every year they took a, a tenth of everything that they'd gained to the temple and they ate some of it before the Lord and then they left the rest as a gift to the Levites. It was a ritual that God had commanded back in Deuteronomy and the aim, he said, was that it would teach you to fear me properly as a nation. That was how things were meant to be. Once again, the Israelites are holding back. Well, they may be thinking, who does God think he is wanting our stuff? We earned it. We can do what we like with it. You hear that today. There's no way he's getting 10%. Maybe we'll give him five. Maybe we'll give him one. Maybe we'll give whatever we feel like whenever we feel like it because it's ours. It's mine to do with as I want. But we don't get to, to set the rules on how we relate to God. Uh, when he tells us to love him with our whole heart, it's not a negotiation. If we, if we try to give him just a fraction of our love when we feel like it, we are robbing God of the glory and worship that is due to his name. And it is an astonishing scandal for anyone to treat God like that. Here, it is a whole nation and worst of all, it's God's own nation treating their saving, blessing God like that. As a result, they are experiencing the effects of God's curse. But that could yet change. God is reminding them, I'm still the Lord of unchanging and abundant grace. I've been preserving you for generations. It's not too late for you. Return to me and I will return to you. Our first point, then, the Lord doesn't change, return to him. Second, the Lord loves to bless, test him. Uh, let's pick it up at, at verse 10. God says to them, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. That's what I want you to do, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Just zoom in again on what God reveals about himself here. I love this picture, don't you, of God waiting by the windows of heaven. I was thinking of it, I think the only time I've ever waited by a window was to throw water balloons at, at people below. I don't do that sort of thing anymore. Obviously, that's not a good thing to do, even on Raisin weekend. But here God is waiting by the, the windows of heaven because he wants to bless people. So different to the way that we tend to think about God. Uh, I read a novel about a guy who was um, really controlling of his partner. He was mean, he was manipulative, he was coercive. And, and I was having a conversation in which someone made me think, actually, they think that that's what God is like as well, that he's some weakling with a really big ego who tells everyone to worship him just so that he can feel better about himself. I think I grew up thinking of God like some health and safety inspector wandering around the world in a high-vis jacket with a, a clipboard and a, a big set of rules, hoping that someone would step out of line so that he could 
slap some kind of punishment on them. Others, people even in town this weekend, will be thinking of God as the ultimate fun police. Even Christians fall into this trap, don't we? I, I guess this is your heart, it, it's mine. God tells us to return, to commit to him with all of our heart, give him 100% of our being. And we're tempted to hold back because we fear that he doesn't really have our best interests at heart, that we'd have to settle for second best when really the opposite is true. So I wonder if we've twigged this about God. Do you know that this is what God is like? That the reason that he tells us to return to him isn't for his benefit, but for ours. Of course, it brings glory to him, but he wants to bless us. And if this isn't our sense of who God is, it needs to change. This is the God who flings open the windows of heaven as wide as he can and stands ready to rain down a proper proper biblical monsoon's worth of blessing on the very same people who have been robbing him of the love and the glory he deserves for generations. How do you respond to a God who loves to bless in that way? Here it's to put him to the test. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I won't open the windows of of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So you see how the test is going to work. God says, do what you should have been doing all along. Give to me the full amount that I'm owed and watch as I turn the curse that you are experiencing into blessing. Uh, For them back then, the curse was being experienced in their vegetation. Um, Pests were devouring their crops, their harvest was failing, and the thing we need to register theologically was that this was part of the covenant curse that God had warned Israel about back in Deuteronomy 28. Let me quote a bit. He said, if you won't obey my voice, you shall carry much seed into the field, but you will gather little, for the locust will come to you. You shall plant vineyards, but you shall not drink of the wine, for the worm shall eat the grapes. That's what will happen if you won't obey my voice. But now God says, you're experiencing that curse, the first flushes of it at least. But all of it can change. Deal with the underlying problem of your sin. Return to me properly and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour down blessing upon you instead. And I think it's significant that they're told to test God in this area of money in particular, not only because it was an area of disobedience, but money's always a litmus test of what's going on in our hearts. Jesus says where our money is, that's where our heart will be also. And the root reason that they're wanting to dodge their tithes, I take it, is that they didn't trust God to provide for them. They thought they had to take care of their own interests because they didn't trust that he was good and powerful enough to provide for them. And God says, I know that's what you think, but I'm not vengeful, I'm not vindictive. I love to bless. I don't change. So return to me 
and I will return to you. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. That's the extent of the reversal God's promising. In chapter one, God said to Israel, I have no pleasure in you. Now he says, if you return, you will be a land, literally, of pleasure, the same word. And so for them then, the application was pretty straightforward. If they return as they're told, you'll experience God's blessing, he says, materially, temporally, right now. For us today, that's not quite how things work anymore. God's curse doesn't hit our vegetation in the same way. If you're looking for evidence of God's blessing in your life, you don't go down to your allotment, although he does graciously provide us with all of our food. But the language of blessing and curse remains a reality. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The wrath of God remains on them. So there is blessing and curse. And God doesn't change. He still loves to bless all who will return to him. And so he says to a world, to people, who are robbing him still of the glory that he deserves as our maker and as our king, return to me and see if I will not bless you. For, for us today, all of God's blessing is found in his son, Jesus Christ. You can categorically say, if I've come to God in Jesus, if I've believed in him, we have been blessed. We need never fear God's curse again. Christ became a curse, we're told in Galatians, on the cross for us so that we might know God's blessing. The verse we started with, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. That's true of you if you've trusted in the Lord this morning, only if you have. And I made a, a list of some of the blessings that we can so easily take for granted, just to underline in my own heart really how good, how kind, how blessing God has been towards me. So just quickly, in, in Christ, if you've trusted in him, we, we have an, a new start. As God washes away all of our sin and all of our guilt and wipes our slate spotlessly clean, we have a new security. He promises that he will never leave or forsake you. A new presence, he dwells in you by his Holy Spirit. A new power as he works in you to make you more like Jesus. A new community among his people, the church. A new purpose as he sends us out into the world as his ambassadors to make disciples. A new status because in Christ we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own special possession. We are those in whom God delights. We are his sons and daughters. We are his heirs. It's just a, a smattering. Could go on for a long time. But the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, all his blessings. But even if you add all of those blessings up together, they're still just the merest foretaste and down payment. They're just a tiny fraction of all that God's people will enjoy in the Lord Jesus when he returns. 
and we savor the perfect joy and rest and peace of God's ultimate land of delight, his new heavens and his new earth. Only then will we know the full reality of God's blessing. I love that last line in Psalm 16, in your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I wonder if we twig that it's in the Lord that joy and pleasure is to be found. Our time's nearly gone. There's lots more I'd love to say about tithing and giving. Even in the New Testament, um, our attitude to money remains a litmus test of where our heart's at with God. Jesus says it's impossible to serve both God and money. We give to the work of God today, not reluctantly or under compulsion or to try and earn God's favor, but freely and extravagantly because God loves a cheerful giver. We're told if we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly, but if we sow bountifully, we'll reap a bountiful harvest of righteousness in us now and a harvest of praise to God in eternity as he takes the money that we give to the work of his gospel and he uses it to save souls, people who will praise him forevermore. But money's only ever the symptom of what's going on in your life and mine. The, the real issue is how am I responding to the unchanging Lord, to the one who loves to bless people who don't deserve it? It could be that there's someone here this morning who you know that you are still robbing God of the glory, the honor, the love, the worship that he deserves in your life. He says, return to me and I will return to you. I'm sure there are some who have returned to the Lord but are prone to forget just how blessed we are. And when we forget to begin to wander and to look for blessing in other things, be a good day to praise him for his patience, to remember his character, and to remember that in Christ, he has flung open the windows of heaven as far as they would go and lavished you with every spiritual blessing. God says, return to me, and I will return to you. Let's pray together. Moments quiet to reflect on our own hearts, prone to wander, to rob God, To remember that he never changes and that he promises to return to and to bless all who return to him. And so we humbly praise you for your unchanging goodness and grace, almighty God. We know we don't deserve it. But we're so thankful 
that you bless abundantly in the Lord Jesus all who return to you. And we pray that you would fill our hearts with praise. You would help, help us to number and not forget our blessings. And that you might help us to love you and to serve you and indeed to use all of our resources, financial, energy, the years of our life, our gifts and talents in service of you. We return to you as you command and invite us to do. And we're thankful for the blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. It would be right for us to end.